Welcome to Words to Live By, a podcast series hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Each week, we will share some of the wit and wisdom of Ronald Reagan. In essence, Words to Live By, made up of radio addresses and speeches he delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. Today, we're looking at the historic renomination and acceptance speech of President Reagan and Vice President George H.W. Bush in August 1984, 41 years ago. In light of our current political season, we thought it might be valuable to hear a sitting president recount his promises after four years, cite his accomplishments with honesty and candor. To set the scene, it was the first time a Republican National Convention was held in Texas. Reagan carried the endorsement of 2,233 of the 2,235 delegates to the Dallas Convention. Reagan had the majority, clearly. He was beyond a lock, having no serious competition in the primaries. Dallas put on a great show for the visiting delegates and assembled the media. According to the Dallas Morning News, a group of cowboys even conducted a two-mile cattle drive along the banks of the Trinity River the day before the convention's official kickoff. President Reagan accepted his party's nomination on August 23rd to go up against Democratic challenger Walter Mondale and his running mate, Geraldine Ferraro. And let's listen to the speech. It's long. We're going to edit a bit. The president had some guidance again from speechwriter Ken Kachigan, who helped him create a rousing one, touching on all the points of the Reagan era, self-reliance, patriotism, optimism. He reminded voters of all the promises made in 1980 when he defeated Jimmy Carter and proclaimed to have made good on most of them. He begins with a little humor, a gracious acceptance, and then begins to contrast the two political parties. As a frame of reference, remember the Democrats had already held their convention in San Francisco. You'll hear him reference San Francisco. So, let's listen a bit. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Vice President, delegates to this convention and fellow citizens, 75 days, I hope we enjoy a victory that is the size of the heart of Texas. Nancy and I extend our deep thanks to the Lone Star State and the Big D, the city of Dallas. For for all their warmth and hospitality. Four years ago, I didn't know precisely every duty of this office, and not too long ago, I learned about some new ones for the first, from the first graders of Corpus Christi School in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Little Little Leah Klein was asked by her teacher to describe my duties. She said, the president goes to meetings, he helps the animals, the president gets frustrated, he talks to other presidents. How does wisdom begin at such an early age? Tonight, tonight with a full heart, 
and deep gratitude for your trust, I accept your nomination for the presidency of the United States. campaign on behalf of the principles of our party, which lift America confidently into the future. America is presented with the clearest political choice of half a century. The distinction between our two parties and the different philosophy of our political opponents are at the heart of this campaign and America's future. I've been campaigning long enough to know that a political party and its leadership can't change their colors in four days. We won't, and no matter how hard they tried, our opponents didn't in San Francisco. We didn't discover our values in a poll taken a week before the convention. We didn't set a weather vane on top of the Golden Gate Bridge before we started talking about the American family. The choices this year are not just between two different personalities or between two political parties. They're between two different visions of the future, two fundamentally different ways of governing. Their government of pessimism, fear, and limits or hours of hope, confidence, and growth. Their government, their government sees people only as members of groups. Ours serves all the people of America as individuals. There's Theirs lives in the past, seeking to apply the old and failed policies to an era that has passed them by. Ours learns from the past and strives to change by boldly charting a new course for the future. Theirs, theirs lives by promises. The bigger, the better. We offer proven, workable answers. Our opponents began this campaign hoping that America has a poor memory. Well, let's take them on a little stroll down memory lane. Let's remind them of how a 4.8% inflation rate in 1976 became back-to-back -back years of double-digit inflation, the worst since World War I. Punishing the poor and the elderly, young couples striving to start their new lives, and working people struggling to make ends meet. Inflation was not some plague born on the wind. It was a deliberate part of their official economic policy needed, they said, to maintain prosperity. They didn't tell us that with it would come the highest interest rates since the Civil War. 
and average, as average monthly mortgage payments more than doubled. Home building nearly ground to a halt. Tens of thousands of carpenters and others were thrown out of work. And who controlled both houses of the Congress and the executive branch at that time? Not us. Not us. Campaigning across America in 1980, we saw evidence everywhere of industrial decline. And in rural America, farmers' costs were driven up by inflation. They were devastated by wrong-headed grain embargo and were forced to borrow money at exorbitant interest rates just to get by, and many of them didn't get by. Farmers have to fight insects, weather, and the marketplace. They shouldn't have to fight their own government. interest rates of 1980 were not talked about in San Francisco. But how about taxes? They were talked about in San Francisco. Will Rogers once said he never met a man he didn't like. Well, if I could paraphrase, Will, our friends in the other party have never met a tax they didn't like. They didn't like or hike. <laughs> Under their policies, tax rates have gone up three times as much for families with children as they have for everyone else over these past three decades. In just the five years before we came into office, taxes roughly doubled. Some who spoke so loudly in San Francisco of fairness were among those who brought out about the biggest single individual tax increase in our history in 1977 calling for a series of increases in the Social Security payroll tax and in the amount of pay subject to that tax. The bill they passed called for two additional increases between now and 1990, increases that bear down hardest on those at the lower income levels. The Census Bureau confirms that because of the tax laws we inherited, the number of households at or below the poverty level paying federal income tax more than doubled between 1980 and 1982. Well, they received some relief in 1983 when our across-the-board tax cut was fully in place. And, and they'll get more help when indexing goes into effect this January. Our opponents have repeatedly advocated eliminating indexing. Would that really hurt the rich? No, because the rich are already in the top brackets. But those working men and women who depend on a cost of living adjustment just to keep abreast of inflation would find themselves pushed into higher tax brackets and wouldn't even keep, be able to keep even with inflation because they'd be paying a higher income tax. That's bracket creep, and our opponents are for it and we're against it. It's, it's up to us to see that all our fellow citizens understand that confiscatory taxes, costly social experiments, and economic tinkering 
were not just the policies of a single administration. For the 26 years prior to January of 1981, the opposition party controlled both houses of Congress. Every spending bill and every tax for more than a quarter of a century has been of their doing. About a decade ago, they said federal spending was out of control, so they passed a Budget Control Act, and in the next five years ran up deficits of $260 billion, some control. In 1981, we gained control of the Senate and the executive branch. With the help of some concerned Democrats in the House, we started a policy of tightening the federal budget instead of the family budget. task force, a task force chaired by Vice President George Bush, the finest vice president this country has ever had. It, it eliminated unnecessary regulations that had been strangling business and industry. And while we have our friends down memory lane, Maybe they'd like to recall a gimmick they designed for their 1976 campaign. As President Ford told us the night before last, adding the unemployment and inflation rates, they got what they called a misery index. In 76, it came to 12.5%, and they declared the incumbent had no right to seek re-election with that kind of a misery index. Well, four years ago, in the 1980 election, they didn't mention the misery index, possibly because it was then over 20%. And do you know something? They won't mention it in this election either. It's down to 11.6 and dropping. Upon arrival in Dallas, the president met with former President Jerry Ford, who gave a fine speech in staunch support of the president. He even pledged to go all out in the campaign. Some of the Dallas Cowboys were in attendance. Tom Landry, quarterback Danny White, and one-time great Roger Staubach who presented him with a Dallas Cowboy jersey with the number 84. So, let's listen a bit more to the president as he reminds Americans what happens when government becomes overinflated. Pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into programs in order to make people worse off was irrational and unfair. It was time we ended this reliance on the government process and renewed our faith in the human process. In 1980, the people decided with us that the economic crisis was not caused by the fact that they live too well. Government lived too well. It was, it was time for tax increases to be an act of last resort, not of first resort. The people... The people told the liberal leadership in Washington, try shrinking the size of government before you shrink the size of our paychecks. Yeah. 
Our government, our government was also in serious trouble abroad. We had aircraft that couldn't fly and ships that couldn't leave port. Many of our military were on food stamps because of meager earnings and re-enlistments were down. Ammunition was low and spare parts were in short supply. Many of our allies mistrusted us. In the four years before we took office, country after country fell under the Soviet yoke. Since January 20th, 1981, not one inch of soil has fallen to the communists. of all, worst of all, Americans were losing the confidence and optimism about the future that has made us unique in the world. Parents were beginning to doubt that their children would have the better life that has been the dream of every American generation. We can all be proud that pessimism is ended. America is coming back and is more confident than ever about the future. Tonight, tonight, we thank the citizens of the United States whose faith and unwillingness to give up on themselves or this country saved us all. More from the president's historic acceptance speech right after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org slash give. Now, back to the speech, which ran 51 minutes, and the president was interrupted with applause and demonstrations 81 times. <laughs> An interesting media note, Stephen Hayward in his book, The Age of Reagan, 1980 to 1989, noted the problem with biased coverage of GOP conventions. In a survey of CBS and NBC News coverage, published in Public Opinion magazine after the convention. Both CBS and NBC called the Republican Party, its platform, or its dominant leaders by conservative labels 113 times. They called the Democrats by liberal labels 21 times and moderate labels 14 times. Republicans were measured in ideological terms, 
with their distance to the right discussed and calibrated. Democrats were seldom evaluated by such criteria. All in all, the three news outlets were three times more critical of Reagan than Mondale. Well, I guess they didn't really connect with the American people since Mondale lost in a massive landslide. So let's get back to listening to the president and recalling why he soundly trounced Mondale. Let's listen. Together, we began the task of controlling the size and activities of the government by reducing the growth of its spending while passing a tax program to provide incentives to increase productivity for both workers and industry. Today, a working family earning $25,000 has about $2,900 more in purchasing power than if tax and inflation rates were still at the 1980 level. Today, today of all the major industrial nations of the world, America has the strongest economic growth, one of the lowest inflation rates, the fastest rate of job creation, six and a half million jobs in the last year and a half, a record 600,000 business incorporations in 1983, and the largest increase in real after-tax personal income since World War II. We're enjoying the highest level of business investment in history, and America has renewed its leadership in developing the vast new opportunities in science and high technology. America, America is on the move again and expanding toward new eras of opportunity for everyone. Now, we're accused of having a secret well, if we have, it is that we're going to keep the mighty engine of this nation revved up, and that means a future of sustained economic growth without inflation that's going to create for our children and grandchildren a prosperity that finally will last. Today, Today, our troops have newer and better equipment. Their morale is higher. The better armed they are, the less likely it is they will have to use that equipment. But if, but if, if for heaven forbid, they're ever called upon to defend this nation, nothing would be more immoral than asking them to do so with weapons inferior to those of any possible opponent. We, we have also begun to repair our valuable alliances, especially our historic NATO alliance. Extensive discussions in Asia have enabled us to start a new round of diplomatic progress there. In the Middle East, it remains difficult to bring an end to historic conflicts, but we're not discouraged, and we shall always maintain our pledge never to sell out one of our closest friends, the State of Israel. Close 
closer to home, there remains a struggle for survival for free Latin American states, allies of ours. They valiantly struggle to prevent communist takeovers fueled massively by the Soviet Union and Cuba. Our policy is simple. We are not going to betray our friends, reward the enemies of freedom, or permit fear and retreat to become American policies, especially in this hemisphere. None of the four wars in my lifetime came about because we were too strong. It is weakness. It is weakness that invites adventurous adversaries to make mistaken judgments. America is the most peaceful, least warlike nation in modern history. We are not the cause of all the ills of the world. We're a patient and generous people. But for the sake of our freedom and that of others, we cannot permit our reserve to be confused with a lack of resolve. Ten months... <laughs> Ten months ago, we displayed this resolve in a mission to rescue American students on the imprisoned island of Grenada. Democratic, Democratic candidates have, have suggested that this could be likened to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the crushing of, the crushing of human rights in Poland or the genocide in Cambodia. Would you, could you imagine Harry Truman, John Kennedy, Hubert Humphrey, or Scoop Jackson making such a shocking comparison. So, you've waited patiently for the optimist, the uplifting, joyful remarks of our 40th president. Let's continue listening. In 1980, we asked the people of America, are you better off than you were four years ago? Well, the people answered then by choosing us to bring about a change. We have every reason now, four years later, to ask that same question again, for we have made a change. The American people joined and helped us. Let us ask for their help again to renew the mandate of 1980, to move us further forward on the road we presently travel, the road of common sense, of people in control of their own destiny, the road leading to prosperity and economic expansion in a world at peace. As we ask for their help, we should also answer the central question of public service. Why are we here? What do we believe in? Well, for one thing, we're here to see that government continues to serve the people and not the other way around. Yes. Yes. Government should do all that is necessary, but only that which is necessary. We don't, we don't lump people by groups or special interests, and let me add, in the party of Lincoln, there is no room for intolerance, and not even a small corner for anti-Semitism or bigotry of any kind. 
Many people, many people are welcome in our house, but not the bigots. We, we believe in the uniqueness of each individual. We believe in the sacredness of human life. For some time now, we've all fallen into a pattern of describing our choice as left or right. It's become standard rhetoric in discussions of political philosophy. But is that really an accurate description of the choice before us? Isn't our choice really not one of left or right, but of up or down? Down, down through the welfare state to statism, to more and more government largesse, accompanied always by more government authority, less individual liberty, and ultimately totalitarianism, always advanced us for our own good. The alternative is the dream conceived by our founding fathers up to the ultimate in individual freedom consistent with an orderly society. We, we don't celebrate Dependence Day on the 4th of July. We celebrate Independence Day. the right of each individual to be recognized as unique, possessed of dignity and the sacred right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At the same time, with our independence goes a generosity of spirit more evident here than in almost any other part of the world. Recognizing the equality of all men and women, we are willing and able to lift the weak, cradle those who hurt, and nurture the bonds that tie us together as a nation, one nation under God. Finally, finally, we're here to shield our liberties, not just now, for now or for a few years, but forever. We bring to the American citizens in this election year a record of accomplishment and the promise of continuation. We came together in a national crusade to make America great again and to make a new beginning. Well, now it's all coming together. With our beloved nation at peace, we're in the midst of a springtime of hope for America. Greatness lies ahead of us. Holding, holding, holding the Olympic Games here in the United States began defining the promise of this season. spring and summer, we marveled at the journey of the Olympic torch as it made its passage east to west over 9,000 miles by some 4,000 runners. That flame crossed a portrait of our nation. From our Gotham City, New York, to the cradle of liberty, to the cradle, 
to the cradle of liberty, Boston. Across the, across the Appalachian springtime to the city of the big shoulders, Chicago. Moving, moving south toward Atlanta. Over to St. Louis. Past its, past its gateway arch across wheat fields into the stark beauty of the southwest and then up into the still snow-capped Rockies. After, and after circling the greening northwest, it came... It, it came down to California across the... across the Golden Gate and finally into Los Angeles. And all along the way, that torch became a celebration of America. And we all became participants in the celebration. Each new story was typical of this land of ours. There was Ansel Stubbs, a youngster of 99, who passed the torch in Kansas to a four-year-old Katie Johnson. In Pineville, Kentucky, it came at 1 a.m. So hundreds of people lined the streets with candles. At Tupelo, Mississippi. At 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning, a robed church choir sang God Bless America as the torch went by. The torch went through the Cumberland Gap, past the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, down the Santa Fe Trail and alongside Billy the Kid's grave in Richardson, Texas. by a 14-year-old boy in a special wheelchair. In West Virginia, the runner came... The runner came across a line of deaf children and let each one pass the torch for a few feet. And at the end, those youngsters' hands talked excitedly their sign language. Crowds spontaneously began singing America the Beautiful at the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And then in San Francisco, a Vietnamese immigrant. A Vietnamese immigrant, his little son held on his shoulders, dodged photographers and policemen to cheer a 19-year-old black man pushing an 88-year-old white woman in a wheelchair as she carried the torch. My friends... My friends, that's America.
cheered. We cheered in Los Angeles as the flame was carried in and the giant Olympic torch burst into a billowing fire in front of the teams, the youth of 140 nations assembled in the floor of the Coliseum. And in that moment, maybe you were struck as I was with the uniqueness of what was taking place before 100,000 people in the stadium, most of them citizens of our country, and over a billion worldwide watching on television. There were athletes representing 140 countries here to compete in the one country in all the world whose people carry the bloodlines of all those 140 countries and more. Only in the United States is there such a rich mixture of races, creeds, and nationalities. Only in our melting pot. And that brings to mind another torch, the one that greeted so many of our parents and grandparents. Just this past 4th of July, the torch atop the Statue of Liberty was hoisted down for replacement. We can be forgiven for thinking that maybe it was just worn out from lighting the way to freedom for 17 million new Americans. So, so now we'll put up a new one. The poet called Miss Liberty's torch the lamp beside the golden door. Well, that was the entrance to America and it still is. And now you really know why we're here tonight. The glistening hope of that lamp is still ours. Every promise, every opportunity is still golden in this land. And through that golden door, our children can walk into tomorrow with the knowledge that no one can be denied the promise that is America. Her heart is full, her door is still golden, her future bright. She has arms big enough to comfort and strong enough to support. For the strength in her arms is the strength of her people. She will carry on in the 80s unafraid, unashamed, and unsurpassed. In this springtime of hope, some lights seem eternal. America's is. Thank you. God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the Words to Live By podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of Words to Live By come out every Tuesday. Like what you hear? Check out our A Reagan Forum podcast, featuring great speeches delivered at the Reagan Library. New episodes drop every Thursday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan 40 on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.